A few weeks ago, I gave a, a rundown on, on ancient timekeeping. Today, again, I'd like to go back about 6,000 years ago and look at another custom that is as old as time itself. Man seems to have always looked at his short lifespan and sought to expand it, if not in life, then in death. When that life ended, rich and important men built monuments to themselves in which they were buried. The most famous of these, of course, are the pyramids of Egypt. I've never been to Egypt, but I've seen plenty of pictures about them. Pharaohs, the rulers of the land, would have these structures that you've all seen built during their lifetimes to house their remains after their deaths. These pyramids were an improvement on the ziggurats of Mesopotamia built 500 years before the pyramids were. All of these may have been preceded by mastabas, a rectangular structure with sloping sides. And I think the, the Great Pyramid of Cholula is an, sort of an example of what it looks like, a four-sided pyramid, flat on the top. It's also the largest pyramid in the world with, a, uh, with sides a quarter of a mile long. I looked up to see when it was first excavated and restored, and I was inside of it within six years of that time. I, my Mexican archaeologist friend, he's not Mexican, he's American, but he's a Mesoamerican archaeologist, was studying down there at the time, quite an impressive structure. However, that wasn't a burial pyramid, so I'm off the subject, aren't I? Okay. Nowadays, men still build monuments to themselves. Oh, we don't have it that much here in California, but if you're in back east, you will see old cemeteries with the large monuments. You might see some family tombs scattered among them. We don't do that much in California, but uh, these are still built. I had toyed with going into these cemetery in Guanajuato, and I decided not to. If you've ever been there, you'll know why. George Washington was buried at his home in Mount Vernon, but an obelisk was raised as a monument to him in Washington, D.C. Likewise, as, uh, Abraham Lincoln is buried in a family plot in Springfield, Illinois, but a monument raised to him also in Washington, D.C. Now more modern presidents are buried at their presidential libraries. Uh, an example of that is the Richard Nixon Library down in Yorba Linda, where he and Pat Nixon are buried. In Simi Valley, Ronald Reagan is buried at his presidential library. And I think that you'll see in the future that with presidential libraries come in, this will be their monument, their pyramid to honor their life. So what was it like in ancient Israel? I, we've talked about Mesopotamia now and, and Egypt with these impressive structures. Well, when Jacob was dying of old age in Egypt, he made Joseph promise that he would take him back to Israel to be buried. So Joseph, a dutiful son, had Jacob embalmed in the Egyptian fashion. And this is very rare. Only two people in the Bible were embalmed that we know of. Jacob and Joseph. Anyway, Jake, uh, he had Jacob embalmed, and he took him back to be buried in the land that Abraham had bought for that purpose from the Hittites near Mamre, and where Abraham and Sarah were buried, where Isaac and Rebekah were buried. They were all buried in the same tomb. 
the tomb was the cave of Machpelah. So here we go, a cave. For 2,500 years before this time, ziggurats had served for burials. 2,000 years before this time, pyramids had served for burials. And what are the Jews doing? The Israelites. They're burying people in caves or in, in cut tombs from stone, uh, soft stone that was all over Israel. Now, we're talking about possibly the most pa- famous people in history. When we talk about Father Abraham, when we talk about Isaac, when we talk about Jacob, Joseph being buried, they're buried in a simple cave. There happens to be um, good reasons for that. As I said, Jewish custom, you did not embalm your dead, so you were going to need to get into the ground quickly. And Jewish custom calls for the rapid burial of the dead out of respect. It was a respectful thing to do for the dead to bury them quickly. Also, because the Israelites did not embalm bodies, the hot temperatures in Israel necessitated the immediate burial of bodies. Uh, Once again, I'll remind you of Lazarus. I've done this twice in Acts already. And his sister telling Jesus that as it had been three days since Lazarus was buried, there would be a smell. You decompose very quickly in the heat of Israel. Hasty burial was necessary, and a cave, of which Israel has many, or a tomb cut into soft stone, was where the dead were laid. Now, the chamber of the tomb, you'd have a door on one side, and the other three sides had a low shelf around it where the bodies would be laid. Often, these were family tombs, like I was just saying about the cave of Machpelah. And when other family members died, the skeletons were removed from the shelves and just placed on the floor of the chambers. Hence, the Bible talks about Jacob's wish in Genesis 49-29 to be taken back to be buried with his fathers, and this was very literally true. He was going back to be buried with his fathers. Other places talk about sleeping with your father, and this is what it means. The phrase slept with his father always was used at least 36 times in the Old Testament. It was used of David and Solomon. They both were gathered, died and were slept with their father. Jeroboam and Rehoboam, Basha and Omri, Ahab and Jehoshaphat, and on and on. This was all said of them. Now, there's an old joke that asks, who is buried in Grant's tomb? Now, do you know, I've heard that my whole life, and I've always thought that that was just a rhetorical question. I did not know that there was a punchline to this joke, and I had to look it up. And the answer to the question, who is buried in Grant's tomb, is no one because they were entombed. They were not buried. But the Bible will take, a fit, uh, take the opposite tack with you here, and we're going to see it in the ending of at Pente- uh, Peter's speech at Pentecost. Acts 22, 29 through 35 reads, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb... So here we go. Uh, he, he was buried in a tomb, okay? That's a biblical term for what is done when you're entombed. 
He both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an, uh, with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this day that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. And I'm going to add the last verse. Uh, I'm not really covering it today. I'm going to cover it uh, the next time I preach. Uh, But verse 36 ends the sermon, so we'll end the sermon today. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So in verse 29, Peter states that David both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Peter tells his listeners of this first Christian sermon that David died, which they knew. David was buried, which they knew. And that his tomb was still with them, and everybody who was speaking to them knew where David's tomb was at that time. Like Mount Vernon or Monticello, it was a known landmark. Now, today in Israel, you can visit David's tomb. Remarkably, and I say coincidentally, it's the first story of a two-story building, the second story of which is claimed to be the upper room. Now, there are a few problems with this scenario. This portion of Jerusalem had not been built at the time of King David. So, David's tomb can't be there. Secondly, another problem is it's probably not the upper room either because the Romans destroyed uh, Jerusalem in AD 66 to 70, left nothing standing but rubble. Uh, Sixty years later, a Roman governor came back and began rebuilding Jerusalem. On a certain spot, he put a temple of, uh, to either Jupiter or Venus, we don't know whom, that plays a role in our story later on down the line. But nevertheless, in Peter's uh, sermon at Pentecost, David's tomb and the upper room, which they had just basically come, probably come out of to preach this sermon, still existed and their locations were known. Verse 30 says, Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. We dealt with David being a prophet last week, that all the psalmists were considered prophets, and that, in fact, David was prophesying in a number of places in the Psalms. But Peter goes on to say that God swore an oath to put a descendant, the Messiah, on the throne forever. And so I wanted to see what that oath exactly was, because it was not current in my mind, Second Samuel 7, starting in verse 8, 
I had to go up uh, one one degree on my reading glasses, and now I still had to bend over to see that that verse. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says, and he's speaking to Nathan here. Uh, God is talking to Nathan the prophet and saying, thus you will say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, from the pasture, from following the sheep. I love that. Let's humble the great King David just a little bit there. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth, of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. So formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will bear, uh, be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And this prophecy is not just about Solomon, the son that did come from David and who established a house for God, but it's about the whole kingly line. And then it ends with the Messiah in that prophecy. Psalm 89 says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And that was not written by David. He wasn't just repeating this. This was another psalmist who had written that. The Jews that Peter spoke to here at Pentecost would have known all about all of these prophecies. Goes on, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. You know, we have a concept in in Christianity, in Reformed Christianity, that the New Testament illuminates the Old Testament. What they did not see clearly then, the New Testament helps bring into more focus Uh, This is exactly what Peter does here, and you might argue that there was no New Testament at the time that Peter was speaking, but Peter was speaking the New Testament into existence as he preached, as we have it here in the New Testament. So yes, the New Testament 
The sermon Peter is giving illuminated what it had been said in both the psalm and in 2 Samuel. Peter points them to the fact that in Psalm 16, as we saw last Lord's Day, David was writing about, not about himself, but about the Messiah. John MacArthur sums this section up this way. Peter's argument from Psalm 16 can be summarized as follows. The psalm speaks of a resurrection. Since David, however, was not resurrected, it cannot speak of him. Thus, David speaks in the psalm of the Messiah. Hence, the Messiah will rise from the dead. And Peter goes on in verse 32 and says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And I don't think that Peter is saying all of us disciples, uh, followers of Jesus here, the 120 that are gathered as, I, as he preaches to the um, Jews, I don't think he was just talking about them. Because not only are all the believers gathered in Jerusalem witnesses, but really, so is all of Jerusalem. The whole city knew of the resurrection. Okay, This was not a secret. This was not something, I was going to say that's not something done in darkness, but it was done pretty close to darkness uh, at the first hour of the day, um, 6 o'clock in the morning. But the whole city knew Jesus' body wasn't stolen by the disciples, not just because of the Roman cohort that guarded the tomb, but because Jews found it so important for a person to be buried correctly that they would not have removed it from the tomb and thus defile it. Uh, the worst thing that could happen to you in Jewish society is you be a criminal, and when you are killed, your body is thrown out to the birds and the ravens to be eaten. This was abhorrent to them. They made sure that even strangers to their country had a decent burial, hence the potter's field uh, that Judas' uh, money that he threw back to the uh, priests was used to buy to bury foreigners. I don't know how they were buried in those fields. I don't know if, if graves were used. I could not find that. Or if there were just so many caves that this potter's field was used for the uh, strangers. But it was abhorrent. To the Jews, well, first of all, to touch a dead body, you were uh, ceremonially unclean, uh, but it would defile the memory of the person. The, the disciples were not about to remove Jesus' body from the grave. Anyway, they were all witnesses to the resurrection. But Jesus wasn't just raised from the dead. Uh, verse 33 says, with Peter continuing, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus has not only been raised, but he has been exalted, and now he's sitting at the right hand of uh, the position of power, the right hand of God. Peter points out that the long-promised gift of the Holy Spirit, and I've gone through the prophecies with you from the Old Testament before that, that there would be a time when the Spirit would rest on all believers. Peter points out that that was a gift given to Jesus by God that he has now poured out on his church. That, Peter argued, was what all Jerusalem was seeing in the behavior of the believers at Pentecost. Remember, he starts out saying, we're not drunk because it's only the 
third hour of the day. Peter then uses another Old Testament prophecy, again from David, found in Psalm 110. Peter says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter points out that just as Psalm 16 couldn't be about David because he did die and seek the corruption of the grave, that this prophetic Psalm 110 can also not be about David. David says that the Lord, and that's God the Father, said to my Lord. So who is this other Lord David speaks of? David did not ascend to heaven. He is not seated at the right hand of God. So who is? His heir that would sit on David's throne forever would be that person. And so who is that person? Peter pretty aptly points out that it's the person whose enemies have been made his footstool, placed under his feet, a metaphor of abject submission. Peter gives the answer in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. David was not exalted to God's right hand. David is not on the throne of God's kingdom. No, it was Jesus. Jesus the Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter has walked them through Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation. MacArthur states that Peter had provided overwhelming evidence of that, and the verdict was in that they were guilty of opposing God and rejecting their Messiah. So we've seen today who, who's buried in Grant's tomb, okay? We've gone through who's buried in David's tomb. But the most important question in the world, in the history of the world, is who's buried in Christ's tomb? Because, strangely enough, in the same way you can visit today David's tomb and the upper room, you can go to what is supposedly the tomb in which Jesus was buried. Now, after the Emperor Constantine saw a sign in the sky and converted to Christianity in 312 AD, and just a brief period on this, I'm not positive that was an honest conversion, but you know, just, just between you and me. But his mother, uh, Helena, was a strong, devout Christian. And you'd think, gosh, that's strange for the emperor's previous emperor's wife, to be a strong Christian because they weren't Christians. Well, Helena was a stable girl. She was a milkmaid. She was from humble origins and met Constantine's father when Constantine's father was not any big thing and married. But as Constantine's father moved up the latter, he divorced her and sent her away because she was a milkmaid. She was a stable girl. And so, therefore, she probably was a Christian. 
Well, when, when Constantine converted, he sent his mother, Helena, to go to the Holy Land to identify Christian sites and relics. In Jerusalem, she was accompanied, and I found this not amusing, amazing, by Eusebius. We talk about Eusebius a lot. Eusebius escorted her around Jerusalem with uh, another, he was the bishop of uh, Caesarea. And with the bishop of Jerusalem, Macarius, they escorted her around Jerusalem. And it says that she and Macarius, and it does not say Eusebius, so I want to make sure you know this, in their travels found three crosses. And and Helena decided to do an excavation of the site right then. And it's underneath the temple that was built by the in 130 AD when, the, uh, when Jerusalem was rebuilt by the Roman uh, governor of the area. It's underneath the temple of either, uh, uh, who did I say it was, Jupiter or Venus. They don't know which. And when they started excavating, they found a filled-in tomb, okay, cut into the rock. It was empty, but it had been filled in as a base of the foundation for the temple. Well, Constantine ordered that it be taken down, and they took it down and excavated that area, and they didn't find anybody in the tomb. That's a good sign, I guess. But that is the location that Constantine ordered in 327 the Church of the Sepulchre to be built over. So the Church of the Sepulchre is built over this site that Helena, Constantine's mother, found. She declared those crosses were uh, of Jesus' uh, crucifixion and that the tomb was that of Christ. So anyway, you can still visit today a version of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and I say a version because it's been destroyed and rebuilt several times in the last 1,800 years. What you go to, again, as I say this about the tomb of David, which is not built in a place that says it's built in the Bible, or the upper room, they were all destroyed. The Church of the Sepulchre has been rebuilt at least three times that I could find. Were the crosses those of the execution of Jesus? Several of the relics Helena found are in a monastery in Cyprus. Included are said to be a piece of Jesus' tunic from the execution, pieces of rope that were said to be from Jesus' cross, and pieces of the cross itself. Are they really what they're claimed to be? Well, Helena visited this area 300 years after the death of Christ, 250 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. God can save anything, because I happen to believe in the Shroud of Turin, but that's just me. Um, But God can save anything, but I would think that everything of interest was long gone. But whether Helena found the tomb of Jesus Christ or not, I do know the answer to the question of who is buried in Jesus' tomb. And unlike the answer to uh, who's buried in Grant's tomb, the answer is Jesus was briefly buried in Jesus' tomb, but the grave could not hold him. And he is exalted and sitting at the right hand of God, where he pours forth 
the Holy Spirit of God on all who believe in him. And that's what I know about who's in Jesus too. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we do thank you that, um, that Jesus paid for our sins, that he justified us before the Father. We know that if he was in the tomb, our faith would be in vain. Paul says it. We know that if he did not rise from the dead, we should be out just doing whatever we should do. But Lord, we know that the tomb was empty. Peter knew that the tomb was empty. The people of Jerusalem knew the tomb was empty. Lord, we pray that that empty tomb would be the hope and salvation of the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.